is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here. That's what you've earned here tonight. Forget about the crowd. It's the size of the school. Their fancy uniforms. And remember what got you here. If you put your effort and concentration into playing to your potential to be the best that you can be, I don't care what the scoreboard says, at the end of the game, in my book, we're going to be winners. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that inch. We claw with our fingernails for that inch because we know when we add up all those inches, that, that, that's going to make the f***ing difference between winning and losing. It's down to the wire with, 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 with Errol Marks and Speedy Petey. Oh, Petey! Oh, Petey! On the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, this is Down to the Wire. I'm your host, Errol Marks, my co-host. Mr. Speedy Petey, remember you can reach us by calling us at 631-965-4990. And remember, guys, you can follow us by going to our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Guys, if you're not following us on our social medias, all you have to do is go to our app. You go to iOS, WWSRN. Again, it's WWSRN with our app on the iOS and on the Android. It's Worldwide Sports Radio Network. That's all you have to do to search it, and we are there. And, and by the way, if you guys haven't checked out our website, we have great writers. Really, the content on our app is as good as any content on any single app, ESPN, CBS, and even Bleacher Report. If you go to their app, it's right in front of your, it's right in front of your face and right, right into your hand. So you can... Absolutely dial whatever you want to see, any of these shows that you've missed. If you like Ryan's show, The Morning Boys, you can check out Ryan's shows and clips of his shows. And you can also check out our show. So it's really, really great. And if you guys like and you download apps and you like sports apps, you'll love our app. Anyway, Speedy, how was your weekend, man? It was good. Uh, I called my parents for Mother's Day twice. I called my mother. Uh, we celebrated uh, with my grandparents, we actually got to eat outside for once. It was a nice day. That's and good. My my, our, my aunt and the the new guy Eugene that she's seeing came over for dinner. Oh, so Eugene, a yeah. new boyfriend, huh? Yeah, a new guy she's seeing. He actually has listened to our show. I've, I've told him about. Is he him. a big fan of us? Yeah, he's. he's, he's Is he a fan to... or he's just somebody that just says, you know what? I like sports. I'll listen to you idiots. No, he's he's actually. Well, you're the idiot. I'm the funny he, one. He actually was uh, something like. He that. actually has been listening ever since uh, ever since I first met him, and even before that too. He was listening to, uh, I guess, because my aunt told him told him about us, and he's been listening ever since. He well, has, thank he, you for listening he to has, us. Eugene. He is a big sports fan. He's he's actually a Jets fan, and he's a Mets fan, I believe, and a Knicks fan. Well, thank you, Speedy, for the whole analogy. Anyways, <laughs> uh, we have a great show lined up for you guys at six thirty. We're going to be talking to NFL analyst and the founder of the NFL Podcast Network, Dave Damashek. So he'll be joining us at 6.30. And at 7 o'clock, we will be talking to former NFL scout and CFL scout, Russell Landy. So he will be joining us. He'll talk about the NFL, the draft, and how, you know, the differences between scouting for the CFL and the NFL. So that will be interesting as we move forward. But first things first, I want to get into the last dance. And... I know a lot of people are, you know, in the 90s and really the early, the late 80s were big Chicago Bulls fans. One of the reasons why, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is one of the greatest basketball players, if not the greatest, to me, the greatest athlete to ever play in professional sports. 
and he was a special, special player. What everything that we saw Michael Jordan do, it was like out of a video game. It really was. And episode seven really got down to the 93 Bulls championship. And Michael Jordan, this is a guy that was cerebral. He'd go out there and he pushes players. Practices, you saw him with Scott, with, with uh, Scott uh, on the team at the time of the 93 Bulls, how much he put pressure on some of the players on mm-hmm. that team. B.J. Armstrong talked about it, that Michael Jordan wasn't a fun player to play with. Nope. He wasn't a guy that you would like. But this guy knew how to win. He was all about winning. And he took this team on his back, and he made sure that we were going to play as hard as we could as a team. And it included beating up Steve Kerr, too. <laughs> well, that was, in, that was in episode eight. Well, no, but it's the same kind of thing. They were, showing, they were showing that, and they were just showing how hard he was on the players because of how competitive he was. And really, Michael Jordan's life was structured. As a championship player, he structured his, his, his life between family and and the game of basketball. And that's what that was that was it. He was all about his endorsements, obviously with Nike, which you saw in episode six and seven with the Olympics and Reebok. You, you know he is a dedicated person, not just to his family and to his team, but his brand. And then they showed it later in episode eight with, with Space Jam. He was dedicated to that, too. But what Michael Jordan showed you and really shows us. On this, especially in the episode seven and episode eight of The Last Dance, is the guy wanted to win. And he would do it at all costs. This is what this guy was all about. He was all about finding a way to win. And he would do anything to get to that championship game or that championship series where he can win those games. And you could see every episode so far, just chronologically, every playoff series, every guy talking trash to him. He came back stronger than I've ever seen anyone do. And just every multiple different instances, multiple different ways. They showed the even even if they weren't talking crap to him, Michael Jordan would put in his head that they were talking crap. I I, I, right. I if I'm not mistaken, there was a game against the Bullets. Right. Who was that guy? Because I the guy that I I never heard of the guy. He scored 38 points against Michael Jordan, and then the game after on a back to back day where he went to Washington, he scored 36 points in the first half of the game. Right against so, the same guy, Scott. Right. And there was the there I think was, it was Scott. Uh, uh, I forget his name, but the, he said that. All right, the he said that. Oh, nice game, Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan said, "Oh no, well, I he never didn't said say that. that. I never said that." Right. We found that out later, so that was a whole thing. But again, regardless of if he said it or not, Michael Jordan still took it as fuel. Uh, Michael Jordan always took everything as fuel. If you ever see him go into Madison Square Garden, even when he came back, even when he came back against the New York Knicks after coming back from uh, in episode eight, you see it. When he comes back from retirement, Michael Jordan went into New York and scored 55 points against the New York Knicks yeah. in Madison Square Garden. LeBradford Smith was the guy's name. There you go. And LeBradford scored 38 points against Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan did not have a good game. And then the day after, flying back to Washington, he made sure that he, would, he was going to let that kid know that he was Michael Jordan. <laughs> yep. And he did. He, <laughs> he showed did him. He, he showed him. He did that with, what, 35 in the first half, and then he finished. 36 in the 36 first 36 in the first half, and then he finished with 47. <laughs> Michael Jordan has shown that year in and year out, the talented player that he was, and one of the greatest athletes we have ever seen, not only on a basketball court, but throughout the country, throughout every single sport that we've seen. You talk about Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, and all their respectable sports, even Michael Phelps, when they talk 
talk about swimming. Mm-hmm. Carl Lewis, when it came to the triathlon, that's where Michael Jordan was. He was on top of the world. He was the biggest superstar, not only in sports, in the world, just like LeBron James is today. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of people compare Michael Jordan and LeBron James, which there is no comparison to any one of those guys. Yeah, I, I think what you're seeing in this series in particular is just how fierce of a competitor and really... It's not even that. Michael Jordan was just a completely cerebral player. Right. That's and, the type of player how, that he was. Just how good of a leader he was, too, intensity-wise, motivation Well, that's wise. why they compare Kobe Bryant to Michael Jordan. Right. And, again, I don't think... I mean, LeBron has it to some extent, but I don't think he'll ever have it to what Michael Jordan did. And you're seeing it with not only his rivalries, well, I, but his I, teammates. I would take that back because LeBron James has proven that. He came back from a 3-1 deficit uh, against arguably one of the greatest basketball teams ever in the Golden State Warriors when they scored. They had 73 wins that mm-hmm. year. And he came back from a 3-1 deficit and win that game, and oh, win that series. And me, I don't want to discredit- hear about Draymond Green because not- LeBron James had everything to do with it. Right, and, all- and also the fact that Draymond Green should have been suspended earlier in the playoffs where they might not even made the finals. <laughs> but also, Episode 7 taught us a little bit about Michael Jordan's father's death and the murder of his father. Now, I thought Michael Jordan, over the years, and I really never followed Michael Jordan when I was a, a basketball fan in the 90s because I was a Nick fan and I hated Michael Jordan. I really disliked Michael Jordan. Everything about Michael Jordan, I couldn't stand. I knew how great he was. He was the greatest athlete I've ever seen. And I was a hockey player, and I was so deep into hockey. But basketball was my love. And watching the Knicks get pulverized by the Chicago Bulls year in and year out in the 90s was just disgusting to me. I found it interesting that at that time, when they were showing that when his father got murdered... How, why is there such lazy journalism just accusing him of doing it? They're, they weren't they weren't having any bad stretches of time. They, they weren't didn't have a bad relationship with each other. And the such lazy thing that it was gambling that there was the reason why when that's not where his body was found was just lazy to me. Well, I also didn't be, I, I didn't know the story where they found his car two weeks before they found the body. They found the car in bushes or in, in, like, like in, in between trees like that, yeah. in the woods. And they didn't find anybody. His, his windows were knocked out. Everything was knocked out. His brand new car was in the woods, and that's all they found of him. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for his body, and they finally found his body in a lake. In, what do they call that? A bridge? I think it was a river. They it was a river. The, uh, it was under the river's uh, bridge. Okay. That's where they found it. And Michael Jordan, I didn't know. I thought it was a – because over the years, you, you always heard that Michael Jordan was a gambler, and so was his father, and his father liked to gamble. And a lot of people thought that Michael Jordan's father died because of gambling debts. Well, that is so untrue. Michael Jordan even came out on that Last Dance episode 7 and said that had nothing to do with a gambling death. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I just think that he it was just so unfairly scrutinized to what Michael Jordan was and his relationship with his father. He wasn't a bad relationship. It's just so impulsive and lazy and just dumb, all the journalism at that time, just lazily accusing him. And also... Then you, you, you knew the story in 93. Everybody, everybody didn't know what Michael Jordan was really going to do. And the stories were coming out from you know, the last dance that him and his father had that conversation before the 93 playoffs even began that he was going to retire in 93 and go and play in the major leagues. That's what he was, that was his love. That was his father's love. And that was the first sport that he got Michael Jordan into when he was a kid. That was a whole interesting segment, too. I didn't even realize Terry Francona was the minor league manager. I didn't either. But that was a, a bit of information. It's, and it's interesting what he said he thought he could have played in the major leagues which again any manager is going to say that in the minor leagues but 
it's Terry Francona, who's a great major league manager. Maybe there was some merit to it. Who and, knows? and here's another we'll thing. We'll never that, know. Here's another thing that, that people didn't know about Michael Jordan. When he came in to minor league baseball, he was on a 13-game hitting streak mm-hmm. before he went into that slump. Right. And, and really, everybody said. And then it took him a little while, and then he figured things out. He figured out how to hit a curveball and right. a breaking ball. And then he became a pretty good hitter. And a lot of people believe that if Michael Jordan played a little bit longer, he would have made it to the major league levels. And you wonder, again, if, again, pitchers maybe took him lightly at the time because, oh, this guy's a 31-year-old. Oh, he's a basketball player. And then they get all of a sudden, oh, it's Michael Jordan. Nope, nope, he can still do it. <laughs> and Michael Jordan, the greatness that he is, he eventually decided to come back. And you saw it. He wore the number 45. And I remember when he came back in the middle of the season, was at the end of the season, Michael Jordan, when you play baseball, and you know it's a completely different training of your body, and you heard what his uh, physical therapist slash trainer told everybody, you know, in this in this documentary that to go from base go from basketball to baseball at the age of thirty one, it, it's really going to beat the hell out of your body, and you might never play basketball again. Mm-hmm. And he was very surprised that Michael Jordan decided to come back in the strike season of baseball when the Chicago White Sox wanted to call him up to the major leagues, and he said that he will not go and just be called up because the, the baseball league was going to be on strike. And they were yeah, gonna yeah strike he didn't players. want to be thought of as a replacement yes. player kind of thing. And so he decided to step away from uh, ba- baseball to go back to basketball. But before that, he reached out to B.J. Armstrong. He met up with B.J. Armstrong, and B.J. Armstrong brought him to the team, and he started having private practices, three or four private practices with the Chicago Bulls before he decided to come back. And then when he came back, he was like a little kid, a rookie again, because his father was no longer there. He had his father there every single game, every single playoff game. His father was there when he raised those trophies. He, He was a completely different beast when he came back from baseball to to basketball. Yeah. And wearing the number 45, uh, playing against uh, – who was he playing against in the semifinals? Uh, I think it was the Orlando Magic. Yeah. And Anderson said – Anderson said 45 is not 23. And what did he do when he came back? He, that next game, he came back with the number 23. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Michael Jordan had one of those fantastic yeah, games. He had one of those vengeance games that we, we talk about all the time, even though they lost the series. I mean, they, they, he just showed that he still can get pack – into the game just as quick as anyone could do just playing baseball for what a year and a half. And they were saying it all the time. I tell you the different muscles that are worked out for baseball and basketball, different strength routines, stamina routines, anything like that. So it was just very tough for him to do it that season. But again, after that, we know what happened after that 72 and 10. Exactly. And then you, you look at episode eight and it goes right into space jams. And he, after he lost against Orlando, you saw how upset he was and how he wanted to get right back on, you know, right back on the bike. He wanted to get right back in the gym and train. And right after the season, his trainer said, do you want me to reach out to you two, three weeks? Usually Michael Jordan takes two or three weeks off. He went right back into training. Then he right. started doing the Space Jam uh, movie. And they were they actually built a gym and a workout session for him that during the eight hours, nine hours, he was, he was um, they were recording the movie. After that, he was doing two, three hours of training after that and then practicing with NBA players that were coming over there and training and playing pickup games with Michael Jordan for three hours. That's nuts. That's like seven, eight hours of basketball all at once. You would think Seven, eight hours. He did eight hours 
of movie roles, then two hours worth of training, oh, that's, that's like and then three <laughs> hours worth of basketball, back and back, back and back play for three hours with guys like Reggie Miller, Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen. All these players came. Patrick Ewing. They all came to right. practice with Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan was so upset of losing against the Orlando Magic. He wanted to make sure that he was in tip-top shape before the '96 season. And it was interesting. They said they actually used that as a scouting report for for those certain players too. That maybe he doesn't he hadn't faced in a while or he didn't face up close. A lot of those players he ended up gaining a lot of knowledge from just how they played. Because again, movies can script many different things differently. But it's interesting the knowledge that he took in terms of transitioning the movie game into the real game. And before the season even started, the Steve Kerr incident with Michael Jordan, where Michael Jordan was saying and talking a lot of crap to some of the players because he was upset that these players were having fun on the court and he wasn't a, they weren't a part of those championship 93, 92, and 91 championship teams of the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, they were saying, I think there was, what, five new players since Michael six, Jordan six. played? Luke okay. Longley, Weather, Weatherton, whatever his name is. Wennington. Wennington, Wennington uh, Tony Tuco. Coach, coach and Kerr. Steve Kerr. There the was one. there was other two. There was two other there guys. Two others? Okay. There were two other guys. There were about five or six players that were not part of the team or the organization when they won those titles. And Michael Jordan said he wasn't there playing games. He wanted to make sure that these guys knew what he was all about. And Steve Kerr didn't like it. And him and Steve, Steve Kerr had a scruffle. Steve Kerr punched him in the chest. And Michael Jordan punched him in the face. And Michael Jordan reached out to Steve Kerr after the practice. After... After, you know what, Phil, Phil, uh, Jackson. Phil Jackson kicks him out of the practice mm-hmm. and then goes to Michael Jordan and says, Michael, what are you doing? He says, I, I took it to a whole nother level. I'm sorry. And he reached out to Steve Kerr. He found Steve Kerr's – somehow he found Steve Kerr's uh, – Phone number. Phone number. Not even phone number. He reached out to him in his hotel room. He, he tried to find Steve Kerr's hotel room, and then he reached out to Steve Kerr, and he apologized to Steve Kerr. And he didn't respect he, – he, he grew respe- respect for Steve Kerr after that. Right. That was very interesting that Steve Kerr, who not really thought of as an aggressive guy, would have went after Jordan like that, especially, again, not playing with him before that. And he said that that team completely changed everything, and the 96 Bulls was the greatest – some people say the greatest basketball team ever assembled. When you see the 72-10 and 10 Michael Jordan – yes, Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls. Some people try to compare it to the 98 season when they did win the title. This team was probably the best team they ever had and they ever assembled. And Michael Jordan said that this team was the most together out of all the teams. And it was just because of redemption and also the new depth that they added over those three years he was – or two and a half years he was gone. That just really took it to a whole nother level and it's still the greatest team ever. And you knew he had his eyes set with the Orlando Magic when he played him in the semifinals. And Michael Jordan said that. He, when, when he played them in the semifinals, he had something to prove. And you saw he proved it. That year, they went one, two, three, four, and they swept the Orlando Magic. The same team that beat them and that went to the, the NBA Finals. Didn't they sweep their entire way through the Eastern Conference, too, that playoffs? I'm not sure if they swept the, the whole playoffs. Because I, I know they did the first round against Miami, but I don't think they showed the second round after that. I think they played the Hornets. I don't know if they showed the second round after that because they, they won the first three games of the NBA Finals, too, before losing game four and five against the Sonics. It's, really, it, it's a really fantastic documentary. And if you guys didn't get the chance to watch it, you have to watch it. You have to go out there. It, uh, it, you have the ESPN app. You, if you have Optimum, you can watch every single episode that you missed. It, it's a great documentary. And by the way, how about the Father's Day game where mm-hmm. it was, uh, they were up – 
3-2 to two against the Supersonics when they were up 3-0. Supersonics came back. And it had a lot to do with Gary Payton, the glove. And Gary Payton, Michael Jordan laughed about it. He absolutely <laughs> laughed about it when Gary Payton said that he thought that if he played that hard in the first two or three games, they would have had a chance in that game, uh, in, uh, that, in that series. Yeah, it would have been tough to tell because a lot of people were also— They had no chance. A lot of people were scrutinizing George Carl, too, for not putting Gary Payton on Michael Jordan the whole time, which I give him a little bit of a pass to some extent because also you also take into account— Coaching strategies a lot of times are also let Michael Jordan have his and guard everyone else and we'll, and we'll win maybe. But again, we'll never know how that would have shaped up in the whole series. It would have never happened. Right. But you're right. Just how much happened. depth, how much talent was on that Bulls team. I don't think it really makes that much of a difference. And then the Father's Day game when they Michael Jordan came out. He he. It was it was a symbol for him and his father. It, and if anybody knows anything about Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan was all about his father. His father was always there for him. He was his, his best friend. He was his backbone. And when he lost his father, that was why he left basketball. That was one of the main reasons why he left basketball. Even though him and his father, before the 93 season was over, they were speaking about going into the MLB. Mm-hmm. And he, so, he was the main driving force in, when, he was a, when he was a kid and even in high school for him to play baseball, too. And he wanted to do both. But, again, that didn't happen. And <laughs> the fact that they won the game and, and really you saw the crying and the tears of Michael Jordan and really the happiness. It was, to me, I believe, Michael Jordan's best and favorite championship. Mm-hmm. Because that landed on a day that he can remember his father. And he gave something not only for his family to remember but all the fans to remember how much heart and cerebral attitude that he had to get on that court and win that game in, in Chicago the way he There's did. There's not a more inspired performance that you'll ever see. Well, you saw Brett Favre do it when his father died. Right. But Five was... touchdowns in Monday Night Football. Oh, sure. But I'm, to do that in the NBA Finals with the Sonics gaining momentum like that, all the pressure of trying to finish off this great season, and he did it, and then some. <laughs> and then really, Episode 8 ended with the 98 uh, semifinals against the Pacers. And I'm looking forward to episodes 9 and 10, the last. It, it's a shame it's almost over. Uh, hopefully, the sports season. We'll get into that a little bit later. But up next, we're going to be talking to NFL analyst and founder of the NFL Podcast Network, Dave Damashek, here on Down to the Wire. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, 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 you're listening, listening to, to Down, Down to, to the, the Wire. Wire on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Six three one nine six five four nine nine zero is the number. As you know, Down to the Wire is live every single Monday and Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are here live in New York, Long Island. It is a rainy, terrible, cold day. Speedy loves this weather. He really does. Really? <laughs> I'm the one that loves this weather. But I love it. You know, the, the last dance, we got an opportunity to watch the last dance last night. Hopefully sports are coming back. But we have our first guest of the day, and you guys know him on the NFL Network, NFL analyst and founder of the NFL Podcast Network, Dave Damachek. What's going on, Dave? Hey, what's happening, man? I'm, like, I'm, I'm the founder of the podcast network. <laughs> I'll take it. I don't know if I deserve it. But I'll Look at that, Speedy. Well, you're one of the founders. How's that sound? Right. Exactly. Well, whatever. Listen, let, let's, uh, that's fine. This is the time of, um, <laughs> of dodgy facts. So listen, let's just roll with that. It makes me sound better. Well, it makes you sound better. It makes you look better. It, it just you're a beautiful man inside and out, my friend. That's all I can say about that. <laughs> Thank you. <sir. 
anyways, how are you and your family doing with COVID-19 and everything that's going on with uh, uh, what, what's going on in the world right now? Well, like the rest of the world, I miss sports something awful. But I, I, you know, I hate to say it in a public forum because it makes me sound insensitive. But I have um, a three and a five year old and they are completely unaware of you know, anything beyond their immediate little universe and so try to i try to look at it through their eyes they they don't know anything bad is going on outside our four walls and so it it really is um i i already have said to my wife we're going to look back on this time and and relish um all the the good uh, quality time we got with the little ones um when we had a chance to it's unbelievable. It's incredible. And I know ESPN and CBS are all trying to put on all these old basketball games, these old football games. And, and, and the last dance has been unbelievable, not only for the world to really get to know who the Chicago Bulls are, but it really helps, you know, sports come back. And it's great right now. We watched the virtual, uh, the NFL virtual draft, which is incredible, which we're going to get into in, in just one second with you. We had Cynthia Freeland, uh, your counterpartner, uh, over there at the NFL Network. She was great. and She really spoke highly of the NFL draft and what the NFL did um, going into this this product that everybody was trying to wonder, what are they going to do with this virtual draft? How is this going to make sense? So what are your thoughts with the NFL draft and, and bringing it to the virtual side of the world? I really, I, you know, um, I, I, I'm uh, somebody who shoots his mouth off and then celebrates when I'm right and ignores when I uh, <laughs> am wrong and hope the rest of the world forgets any of my bad predictions. But I did say when this all started, I, I feel like, that society has in these last couple of months sort of started to identify things that were important to hold on to. And, um, you know, through, through all that's going on, we might learn that some things aren't as essential as we thought they were. And among those things, one, do we all need to go into work every day? Do we need to get into the, you know, especially in big cities and stuff, do we need to sit in the rush hour traffic for, an hour or whatever, if you're going from the island into Manhattan, I'm sure you deal with it. I don't know how often you do that, but going from the San Fernando Valley into my job, is there going to be a need to do that? And same goes for the draft specifically. You know, I my favorite thing, unironically, I always um, say, if, if you're near those guys when they're getting drafted, if you're, I mean, they know um, better than you do even, that their lives are about to change, their families' lives are about to change for the better, that they're, you know, about to become instant millionaires in the moment that they hear their name called. And um, I don't think you lost any of that. And, in fact, you might make the case that it was improved upon by letting them be in their homes and around just their immediate families and everything. I thought it played just great. I don't know that you need to gather these guys in green rooms and have three cameras trained on, on the little round tables of, um, uh, you know, with, with their mother and with their agent. And also it creates that weird moral um, choice for the player because so often they make the wrong move I, I, uh, of hugging the agent before they <laughs> hug their loved one. It's something I have perennially tried to speak with the draft prospects about. Don't make that mistake. You know, don't hug your agent before your mom, one, and two, um, if it is Jerry Jones or whomever calling to tell you you've just been drafted, don't pick it up on the first three. That makes you look better. Wait, 
two rings, you know. <laughs> and then when they ask you, hey, you ready to be a member of the Green Bay Packers? Say, like, don't just be like, yes, sir. Be like, I don't know what's in, in it for me. You know, like, play a little <laughs> tough to get, I'd like to see. But anyway, <laughs> as it was, I thought it was a lot of fun. Dave, do you think the virtual draft was a big reason because of potential maybe for technical difficulties that there weren't a lot of crazy trades, no trades in the top 10, and there weren't a lot of big teams trading extra first-round picks and stuff like that? Is the virtual draft, do you think, the biggest reason for that, or do you think there's another? Um, You know, that was the people were speculating about that before the draft even started. Um, I don't know. I You know, one thing I thought might happen um, right at the top there was uh, the skins informed by what uh, Cliff Kingsbury did last year in dealing away the 10th overall pick in Josh Rosen over to Miami. I thought that the lack of excitement and, you know, PR buzz and with, with the skins in a market, I mean, and I should say in a division that has, you know, the Eagles are always great. The Cowboys are, uh, are always among the most popular and um, the Giants are, are, at minimum, would appear to be on the rise. The Skins are the lost member of that uh, of that great division. And I thought maybe they would move on for it. Maybe they would see if they could get a taker in Dwayne Haskins and move up to take Tua. Um, I thought that could happen. But I still won't be surprised if Ron Rivera ends up staying after he gets a good look at Dwayne Haskins. Yeah, let's go with the guy who I've been working with and went to a Super Bowl with in Cam Newton. He's available. Let's get him to be our starter in 2020. But um, anyway, I'm uh, now ruminating on (laughs) trades and uh, transactions that could have happened that didn't happen. I don't know. Because the story coming out of it was that a lot of GMs and personnel guys said, wait, have we needed to do the countless hours of draft prep that we've always done until year?" Maybe we don't need that going forward. So, I, you know, I don't know. I, that seems like a reach to me, to be honest with you, that but the teams otherwise decided in their billion-dollar operations were like, ah, it's too hard to figure out on the computer, so let's just skip it. You know, I, I, that, that, that doesn't seem right. But then again, you're in draft week when they were doing tests of it that they were the, the, the busting in the uh, in the pre-draft little uh, demos that they were doing among the 32 teams. So maybe there is something to that. I'm not sure. <laughs> we are talking to NFL analyst Dave Damachek. Now, Dave, a lot of people were very surprised that CeeDee Lamb was sitting there at 17 and Jerry Judy was sitting there at 15. Were you surprised that the Cowboys got, to me, to, to me probably the best wide receiver in this year's draft? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is I am surprised. Um, I, I, I really, you know, the, the, the wild card is funny. Amy Strask, who was a longtime executive with, uh, with the Raiders with Al Davis, I immediately thought of her when they didn't go CD land, the Raiders, and they went for, you know, it's, I, I said, that is a pick that, uh, that Al Davis would love. It's just taking the fastest guy. That's the, you know, that's the way he liked to operate back in his day, and uh, apparently so too does uh, does uh, John Gruden along with his town like Mayock, and that's what made it so that Lamb fell um, to the Cowboys, and now all of a sudden, you know, it, it's interesting when you look at the Cowboys. They're, they're, they're representative of something that I think happens at this time of the year every single year. I would, and by the way, this is a good radio segment, Nay, maybe an entire 
week's worth of content for you guys <laughs> is try and identify which teams in 2020 are absolutely positively not going to make the playoffs. That's a much harder list to put together than the ones that you think definitely will make the playoffs. You can make a case right now, like, don't the Cowboys appear? Like, there's nothing wrong with them, assuming they get Dak and they resolve that. Um, every team seems like mine is like, say, one or three teams out there. Like, well, that team definitely can't make the playoffs. <laughs> it's such a fun game to play right now because post-draft and free agency, every team feels like, I can see it. I can see that team making a deep playoff run come January. And the Cowboys, when you throw a lamb into the mix of what they already have, man, they just feel they just seem loaded. It almost feels unfair. Dave, is there any pick or fit from the first round that popular consensus liked that you didn't really like in the NFL draft this year? Um I feel like off the top of my head, who didn't uh, who didn't I love? Um, I think that Justin Herbert maybe wasn't worthy of the sixth overall. Um, I think he ends up being better though. It, it I always look back to, I always circle and, and reference the 2011 draft as the cautionary tale for all NFL teams that you don't need to reach to get a quarterback, and yet teams do it every year in not just the first round, but they do it in the top ten picks. Look at Christian Ponder and Jake Locker. They are the two best examples of, like, what the hell did Christian Ponder go where he went in the 2011 draft? And you look through that, that's the best dozen or so picks you'll ever see. I mean, like, I think five or six of those guys are still at this point cracking to the Hall of Fame and sprinkled in there are Christian Ponder and Jake Locker. And, and you know, <laughs> CD maybe, you know, maybe eight, ten years from now we're having the same conversation about, like, why did the Chargers take Justin Herbert when blank was sitting there, CD Lamb or otherwise? And the Chargers, you know, they could have gone and gotten Cam. I know why they wanted a QB. I'm certain they wanted Tua. They were hoping he would fall. But when he didn't, I feel like that was a little bit of a reach pick to get Justin Herbert when they could have taken maybe Isaiah Simmons or somebody like that who tracked to be in a 21st century kind of defensive star in line with Derwin James. If you drop him onto that Chargers defense, Isaiah Simmons, I think it's an airtight defense and it digs to the AFC West fully, the Kansas City Chiefs, Zag or Zilly, digs to their Zag. They're, you're not going to play – you're not going to play who's going to score the most points against the Chiefs. You're not. You're going to lose that one. But maybe if you can have a dominant defense, that's the way that you that you can take them down a little bit. So I think that maybe the Chargers should have gone with Isaiah Simmons because he might end up being. Um, I mean, Chase Young is probably going to be the best defensive player, but there's a decent chance Isaiah Simmons five years from now stands as the the best defensive player this side of. Chase Young in the uh, 2020 draft. We are talking to NFL analyst, the great Dave Damashek. Now, we're here in New York, and I know a lot of people, and, and one of your people over there, Cynthia Freeland, she loved what the Bills did, okay? She, I really believe she's a Bills fan. She claims she's not. She's a Lions fan, but I believe she's a Bills fan, okay? Everything that she said, she was very high on the Bills. What did you think about the Giants' first, second, and third round, and the Jets, and 
Who out of those teams won this year's draft? In the state of New York, I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to curry favor with you guys. Well, I guess that wouldn't be because <laughs> as long as you guys are are men of justice, yes, you don't you don't uh, thumb your nose at the sports god who gave you two teams to choose from. They didn't give you two teams to root for in in the New York metro area. Same thing in hockey and baseball and NBA. That people in LA get that sideways. People in Chicago do too. Bay Area kind of watch. The sports gods didn't give you the Giants and Jets so that you could be like, well, now we have two times the chance to win. No, you choose one, you hate the other. That's how it has to be. And 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 um, you vex me if you if you say otherwise. Um, you know, I think the Giants had a completely boring but good <laughs> draft. I think they did what they should have done um, and, and, and you know, went positions of need. And the Jets, you know, again, C.D. Lamb is intriguing, and, I, you know, I kind of think uh, that would have been fun for them. And, you know, taking care of Sam Darnold is, is really important, and I will say, if you look at the last decade of evidence, there isn't a ton that says that if you want to win the Super Bowl, you have to have a high-end number one receiver. You do, though, have to control the line of scrimmage. Those are the consistent factors in these teams winning Super Bowls. Control the line of scrimmage and have a top-ten quarterback. Sam Darnold, I continue to think, maybe I'm overly optimistic for some people, but I still think he has a chance to be that, to still stand out as the best quarterback of the draft a couple of years ago. I agree he with you. He hasn't had any help. I, I mean, I, I also think that we would be talking very differently <laughs> and more positively about the Jets if they would have uh, fired Adam Gates and hired a guy like Eric Bieniemy. Gates is the only thing that, for me, kind of dulls my enthusiasm for the Jets. You know, otherwise it's like, yeah, that's a team on the rise, but they happen to be in a division with the Buffalo Bills, who I really, really, really believe in. Oh, there it is. Have. Another fan. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I really like them. And again, now the, the knock on them is, well, Josh Allen is inaccurate. And I understand why head coach. Yes, my, my hypothesis is that there is a, a food chain, a trickle down in pro football. GMs condescend to the coaches, the coaches condescend to the media, and the media condescends to the fans. And so coaches tell the media, like, well, what's most important in a quarterback, what you look for in a quarterback is accuracy. Why do coaches like that? Because it allows them to run what they want to do. They're egomaniacs, too, these offensive coordinators. They want their system run the way they want it. Accurate guys like Breeze, Brady, Peyton, they fulfill the potential of what this offense is. They don't like off-script guys as much. They don't like Cam Newton, Ben Roethlisberger, Josh Allen, guys who have cannons for arms are, you know, sometimes spray the ball around, but extend plays with their legs, their physical nature. Not not Mike Vick take off with the ball and run away from everybody. <laughs> a big physical, sling it around, and take a hit, bounce outside the pocket, make a play downfield, 
yeah, they're not easily accurate, but they make up for it in other ways. So Josh Allen, now everybody, so coaches spread around to the media. Josh Allen is inaccurate. They aren't, <laughs> that's why the Bills can't do it. Now the media is spread around. Josh Allen's bad. Now all fans are, yeah, Josh Allen isn't good enough to win. I say, look at Cam Newton, look at Ben Roethlisberger. They're good, like like those, as I say, if Cam Newton and Ben Roethlisberger had a baby, it would be Josh Allen. <laughs> and I think the Bills fans have, have only just now started to see the best of what Josh Allen's going to do. Well, the NFL Network has a lot of Bills fans over there. I can tell you that. At this rate, every NFL Network guest you're going to have, you're going to call it from the from the NFL Network, or as Errol calls it, the Bills Network. <laughs> the Bills Network. <laughs> because he thinks everyone's a bandwagon fan now. <laughs> Well, they, you know what? I'll, I'll say they deserve a break already because they, they, you know, they shot themselves in the foot from day one. They named themselves. I mean, dig this, fellas. I don't know if you thought this through, but the city of Buffalo is named after the majestic beast that once roamed the plains. Mm-hmm. Then they get a pro football team, and they name it after the guy, Buffalo Bill Cody, <laughs> who tried to extinguish all the the Buffalo from those majestic plains. In your own city, you name your team. Your team is named, your city is named Buffalo, and you name the football team after the guy who tried to kill all the Buffalo? It's weird. I now, knew that. In this the 20th century, the way the 20th century went is because of that. This is a new millennium, a new bill. I'd like to see those people win a Super Bowl finally. I did know that weird fact that it's like, it's one of the weirdest ones you'll ever see. <laughs> Dave, you're a big Steelers guy, and they had one of the more fascinating picks of the second round in Chase Claypool, a guy that some people think will be a tight end, others will think will be a receiver. What role do you think he'll have on the Steelers? Um, I, I, I guess what we consider to be 21st century tight ends. You know, I don't think... Uh, you know, hand in the ground, uh, in line block or all that kind of stuff is necessarily what you're going to see a ton of, but as a complimentary piece, um, to a tight end when they go, I'd like to see them, not to get too deep in the weeds, but I would like to see them going with, uh, the, the two tight end sets that they were using, um, three years ago. And it was just about unstoppable. Yes, it was unstoppable because they had Antonio Brown and Levy and Bell. Um, I don't know if you guys heard, but things uh, didn't go the right way, and both <laughs> those guys are, are gone from the Steelers now. Um, but um, for Roethlisberger, that was really um, an effective set for them. And so, Clay, the thing is, Kevin Colbert has had a great track record of drafting wide receivers, pass catchers. Um, so I trust him as far as that goes. I do think that they should have taken J.K. Dobbins when he was sitting there. If you would have told me before the draft that Dobbins would be there for Pittsburgh and they would pass on him, I would have been stunned. And to see him go to the Ravens makes me a little queasy. Um, You know, again, though, I I guess I'm trying to fall back on Colbert's track record of drafting receivers and having faith that he knows what he's doing there. And I I think it's, um, you know, that to not the pick is to exist in the vacuum that is um, that ignores free agency. And the likelihood is with um, T.J. Watt coming up and some of the other guys that Pittsburgh's definitely going to want to hold on to long-term, um, that Juju Smith-Schuster probably or, you know, 50-50, whatever, is not going to be with the Steelers after 
this season and, you know, physically at least, uh, feels to me like, uh, you know, roughly capable of, of um, filling that role that, uh, that Juju has for the last couple of years. Dave, I, this is my last question, and we're going to get off the NFL draft because we have a lot of callers that call this show, and silly callers. And as, as an analyst, as an NFL analyst, and you know a lot about football, and we're probably around the same age. How old are you, Dave? I am 72 years old. <laughs> no, I, I forget. No, I, I, uh, late 40s. Okay, so I'm 38. So I was around when Barry Sanders dominated the game in the late 80s and really early 90s. He was the most explosive offensive player I've seen of my time in football. And, and you, some people will say Jerry Rice. And other people will say different defensive players like Ronnie Lott or whoever you want, or Taylor, whoever you want to say. But this particular fan that calls the show, and he, we call him the Beef, and he's from Bayshore, he, he loves his Cowboys, and he loves Ezekiel Elliott, absolutely adores this guy. And I, I love Zeke, too. I think he's a great running back, and he's an outstanding player. I uh, just need to shut his mouth. But um, he believes, and he told me that, if he played behind the same, Zeke Elliott played behind the same offensive line as the Lions in those times with Barry Sanders, he would run the ball just as well and have just as better, just as good at numbers as Barry Sanders did in that time. Do you believe that? Zeke Elliott? Zeke Elliott, yes. <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> Listen, here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. Go ahead, tell the I truth. I think for real. I think about Barry Sanders. I don't want to upset you. I think that Barry Sanders was great and would have been great on a lot of in a lot of different situations. But things really, really went his way. Being people say, "Well, he didn't have fullback and he didn't have all that." But they, but they ran the mouth Davis offense that was. I mean, it wasn't a completely never-before-seen kind of approach, but they really spread the defense out, and they would put Barry back there in that single-back setup, and the field was really spread out. But what it allowed him to do was, if you go back and look, I mean, look at his halftime stats, if you can dig them up. Mm-hmm. There are games where he's like at the half or late in the second quarter where he's like eight carries for 11 yards. He was a home run hitter, he, and that's how he would play it. I'm sure if you put him in the, I don't know, if you put him on the, the skins with Joe Gibbs, they said, like, that's not what we need from you, Barry. We need you to three yards and a cloud of dust and beat this other team into submission. He might have been able to do that. But his chief virtue was hitting the big home runs. And so he was that, – that spread offense that Miles Davis popularized really was ideal because he would dance in the backfield and just look for the situation to snap one off. Um, so I, to me, I, I in the all-time, I, I don't do all-time. <laughs> I didn't see uh, Red Grange or, uh, or anybody else play. And by the way, football was irrelevant back then, so who cares? Until <laughs> 1958, it's the greatest game ever played because it made football relevant. So That's then true. if it, it happened before, it doesn't matter, right? That's the logic that should apply. I apply the Super Bowl era as the modern era. And in the modern era, I would put having one, and I thought Barry Sanders was awesome. He's the all-time highlight guy. But I like Eric Dickerson 
Errol Campbell better than I like uh, Barry Sanders. If I if I'm if I'm drafting running backs for my team, but would you would you say he's a little bit out of his mind thinking that Zeke Elliott could have run behind the same line in that time? Come on, be honest, Dave. No, 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 I'm weird. <laughs> no, I, 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 I just I, I just had to go into my because I, I have to be contentious and I have to knock you first by saying that I, that Barry Sanders, wow, great, one of the four or five best running backs mm-hmm. of the Super Bowl era. He's a overrated when people think he's the best they've ever seen. Well, Dave, why don't you tell all the fans how they can find you and how they can find your podcast? I know you have a podcast on the NFL Network uh, podcast. Um... Oh, I do. Yeah, best bet is I do uh, various um, podcasts, various places. If you go to at Damashek on Twitter, I um, shamelessly promote all of it. So that's probably your, your best one-stop shop to go to. And next time, since you're uh, in Long Island, we have to delve into the painful history for Pittsburgh Penguins fans <laughs> um, against the New York Islanders. It's not it's not a happy one for uh, for Lemieux, Crosby, and otherwise. Well, good because I'm an Islander fan, so there you go. So uh, we can absolutely go back and forth. Believe it or not, my favorite well, player. You're 38. You're 38, and so that makes you too young to remember what happened in '82 when the Pens almost interrupted your dynasty two cups in and then 11 years later David Volick and company did interrupt our two two-time cup champion penguins very painful now now I've upset myself by talking about it I could have gotten <laughs> out of this without, without the emotional torment what have well I we will get into a little bit of hockey next time and we definitely want to get you on uh, if there is an NFL season there definitely is going to be an NFL season I believe uh, Roger Goodell and, and all the execs of, are really trying to figure out what, when are they going to start and how they're going to start and if there are going to be fans in the audience. But I, I think there will be an NFL season. And when there is, I would love to get you back on, Dave. Excellent. I'll look forward to it. Thank you, Dave. As everybody knows, thank we you. thank you, Dave. Be well. You too, my friend. You and your family. Dave Damichek, unbelievable. Great, great interview. As you guys know, we have another interview coming right up next. We're going to be talking to ex-NFL scout and CFL scout Russell Landy here on Down to the Wire. You're you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're you're, you're You're listening listening to to Down to to the the Wire wire. on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Six three one nine six five four nine nine zero. As you guys know, this is the number to call here at the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. This is Down to the Wire. We are live every single Monday and Tuesday from six p.m. to eight p.m. New York Eastern Time. We just had Dave Damashek from the NFL Network joining us. He was great, great interview. And we have our second caller, our second interviewer on the phone right now. And if you guys don't know him, he is a former NFL scout and CFL scout. Russell Landy. What's going on, Russ? Right on, I'm just watching it on the phone and looking forward to hopefully some more football getting played this year. Absolutely. How are you and your family doing right now with uh, everything that's going on in the world? We're fortunate that uh, we're doing okay and just grinding around every day, 
trying to make the best of a weird situation. Yeah, it's a crazy situation, and I know a lot of people are quarantined in their houses trying to find something that's on TV when it comes to sports. You're watching old NFL games, old NBA games. I mean, I'm getting bored of watching the same games I watched 10, 15 years ago. So uh, it's been it's been horrific. It really has. So hopefully the baseball, basketball, football season, and hockey season start soon. We know golf is starting soon. Uh, that starts June 1st. And then we have the NASCAR, which I'm, I'm not a big NASCAR fan, but – they're starting a week from now. I think now. they already had a race recently. Did they? So I thought that like two weeks ago or something. No, no, no. They're starting soon. Okay. They're starting soon. So NASCAR and then golf and hopefully every other sport after that. So why don't we get into the NFL? And uh, this year was the first NFL virtual draft. I uh, we've, we've spoke to a lot of different analysts and different writers about this. What were your thoughts with uh, the NFL pushing this virtual draft, which was very unique and very different? You know, I mean, firstly, I think one of the weird things is a lot of people are saying, why did they do it? But the reality is I don't think any NFL or anywhere, to say the least, knows what's going to happen. And if they had pushed this trap and waited, and then all of a sudden, a situation where the country was resolved, the NFL would have been caught not having done what they needed to to have a season. So they were forced to do this. I think they did the best in a weird situation. And I know I've spoken to a number of teams, and they've told me that they think this will change the way that things are done for them in the future. There'll be a lot more virtual meetings, and they believe they won't have to send as many people on the road every fall scouting. So I think in the long term, there are going to be some benefits achieved by teams in the league by having to adjust to this weird situation. Do you do you think the virtual draft was a a big contribution to why there weren't a lot of big trades in the in the first round? None in the top ten at all, and really not a lot of big ones jumping from like twenty spots or something like that. Well, I think it probably played a little bit of a role, but I think it played more of a role is there were a few players like Burrow and Chase Young, um, which from what I was told, there was no way either of the first two picks was moving unless one of those teams got blown out of the water with an offer, and because of the depth of the draft, I think a lot of teams were hesitant to make a gigantic offer to move up there because there's so many quality players after the first round. So I think that played a big part in it. I think the virtual draft played a little bit, but not as big as people are making it out to be. We are talking to former NFL scout and CFL scout Russell Landy. Now, Russ, when you, when you look at the NFL and, and the growth of some of these young players that we've seen year in and year out, and you, you, you see a talent like CeeDee Lamb falling to number 17 with the Cowboys. And there are a lot of Cowboy fans that didn't like that pick, which I have no <laughs> idea why they didn't like that pick. This guy was one of the most explosive wide receivers we've seen come out of the draft since really Julio Jones. What are your thoughts to – you were just saying there are a lot of people that – there are a lot of players that fall year in and year out. Were you surprised this year that a lot of great players fell into the second round and some in the third round? Not dramatically. Uh, I really wasn't that dramatically shocked. And the reason being is there's so much talent in the draft. And you have to remember that almost every team's draft board is going to look very different 
because we're all very different teams. Um, the coaches have different coaching styles, which you're going to see different players learning styles better. So the birds are going to look dramatically different. So when you have a lot of talent in the draft and so many different birds, you're going to see some good players slide. If it was a draft with a overall talent in the top 70 players, you might not have seen some of those guys like a Grant Belpit slide down into the second round. He might have been at the bottom of the first round guy. But there's so much talent that teams can get nitpicky and say, yeah, he doesn't fit exactly what we do. We're going to go with someone that's just as talented at a different position. My question is, as a scout, you were talking about the athleticism of some certain players. How much did the metrics of the combine and just athletic metrics determine how much you liked a player and thought you could, they could succeed in the NFL? Was it a large percentage? Was it half and half kind of thing? What did that? How much did that factor in? Well, it, it, it's not anywhere near half and half. I would say the metrics are probably a five to ten percent part of it. Um, I was just speaking to somebody actually yesterday, higher up with an NFL team. And his exact description of it to me was, hey, the combine and the numbers, those are great. Just to sort of double check, if you as a staff, everybody says this guy's an elite athlete and he tests poorly at the combine, it means you as a staff have to go watch the film and make sure, hey, what we saw is great athleticism, is great athleticism. We weren't falling in love with maybe his production and his toughness. And vice versa, we got tests off the charts. But when that really explosive a dynamic player in college, you go back and watch the film to make sure, hey, are we missing something? And is there a reason that that tested so much better than its production or than what we saw on film? And it's really just a cross-check. If you base a lot of your grade on just those numbers with the combine, there's a good chance you're going to be drafting poorly and drafting in the top ten up pretty regularly. Russ, you were part of the 92 to 98 Rams. And... This is a team that really got built to, the, to me, the greatest show on turf. You talk about Kurt Warner and, and some of the great wide receivers they had on the team. And you were a part of that. You, you, you helped draft some of these players. You helped scout some of these players. What were your thoughts to the Rams organization in that time when they were growing into a championship competitive team? Well, you know, I mean, the organization had a big risk when Coach Fabio came there. Um, and he brought in Charlie Army as the, the sort of head of scouting. Um, prior to Coach Vermeule, the organization as a whole, not just scouting and coaching, was not always focused on how we win every day. There were a lot of different people that were just content with, if we lose, it's okay, because we're, we're working in professional football. And Vermeule got everybody to start focusing on the right direction. Charlie Army got things much more organized. Um, in terms of the scouting department, and those two people really made a dramatic difference in allowing the Rams to become successful. What points of emphasis do you think you've changed within scouting, whether it's offensive or defensive players, from the time you were with the Rams in, from 94 to 98 to today? Can you say that one more time? I'm sorry. I said, what points of emphasis do you think have changed the most within scouting from when you started with the Rams to today? Oh, that's a great question. I would think there's more emphasis now on above the shoulders, to make and make up the emotional intelligence. Um, I think that's something that as the game has gotten more complex in terms of offensive schemes, defensive schemes, the checks with the line of scrimmage, the adjustments that need to be made, players have to be quicker mentally. And I think that's something that teams have to investigate much more. It's much harder to have a player come in now that is not particularly bright and doesn't learn well and be able to get them playing very fast. Um, 
tonight. That is a real challenge, and I think that's one of the reasons that Scotty is still somewhat of a roll of the dice, because it's hard to figure out what goes on above the shoulder, and it just gets harder and harder as the league becomes more and more complex. We are talking to former NFL scout and CFL scout Russell Landy. Now, Russ, I, I look at the NFL and, and scouting, and I'm not a scout. And I would love to be a scout because I love watching college and high school games. We go over there. We do play-by-play with some of these young kids. But my question to you is, when you look at Tom Brady, he was a, a sixth-round draft pick. And everybody was talking about, wow, that was a steal. Look at his greatest, one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. Were you surprised that Tom Brady changed and really transitioned into the star quarterback he became? I mean, yeah, I was definitely, I didn't know. When I graded him coming out of Michigan, um, I did not envision him becoming uh, an all-pro superstar Hall of Famer. I gave him a future starters grade, a third-round grade when he was coming out of Michigan. But there were questions in me, and that, and that again points back to the mental makeup. Some of the things that are hard to see when a quarterback, especially like Tom, was being pulled in and out of a lineup because they had a quarterback named Drew Henson there in Michigan. Um, you didn't get to see how Tom did over three or four years in college when things were poorly. How did he handle it? How did he adjust to it? How, what like a leader was he? Those things were hard to tell because he wasn't a three or four year starter. Um, but that, that's what makes this business great, is that players like that um, can slip through the cracks and get found in the sixth round. In addition to the Rams, you also went to the Browns later. What were some of the big differences of the way the Rams scouted when you were there? Maybe their points of emphasis versus the Browns. Was it stylistically different? What were some of the comparisons between those two teams? And do you think it's drastically different among every team across the league? Well, I don't think it's drastically different in terms of how they organize it. I think it's very different in how they structure their, their board. Um, I would say one of the bigger differences we had with the Browns was that when I first got there, it was very organized. We had people like Dwight Clark was our president, and Joe Collins was our director of player personnel, and they were very experienced in the business. Um, Joe had been in it 30 years, so our scouting department was very organized. When we had meetings, they were detail-oriented. Um, and unfortunately, that shifted. Um, while I was there, Joe was replaced by someone who had rather worked for literally one year as an intern in the NFL, and all of a sudden he was pretty much pretty charge of scouting. And we went from being the most organized scouting department I'd ever been a part of to completely disorganized and disjointed, and that was a big part of the problem we had in terms of bringing in consistent talent once Joe Collins was gone. We are talking to former NFL scout, NCFL scout, Russell Landy. Now, Russ, you've been, you've been a scout for a very, very long time. And knowing that, is there a particular player that you scouted that became an NFL superstar? And which NFL superstar really stood out to you when you were scouting him? Um, I mean, when I was scouting, I loved Mark a player that I gave a very high grade to when he was at West Virginia. Um, he came out with a six-round pick, washed out on um, his first two stops in the league with New Orleans and Cincinnati, ended up going to the Rams and becoming a three- or four-time quarterback. Uh, he was a guy that I really felt had the tools to be special when I saw him at West Virginia, and he proved me correctly. Um, there were so many great players. Also, when I was at the Browns, I was fortunate to scout Bob Sanders at Iowa. 
And he was probably the one guy of all the players. He may not have been the best I ever said, but he was the one that jumped out the most both on the field. And when you met with him and talked with him, he, you just knew this guy was a leader. And he was able to handle being the leader of men in an NFL locker room. And that was one of his great traits when he got to the call to really prove to be a great player was he was a natural leader, which is very hard to find. It was a shame with his injuries, I'll tell you that. Bob Sanders was a great player, and he could have been even greater if uh, he didn't get all those injuries really early in his career. Yeah, there's no doubt. He was a special football player. Um, he, he was a human missile. Through all over the field, he had great plays and used to run, was way better in coverage than I think people expected him to be coming out of college. Um, he, he was a dynamic football player. Not many five eight safeties win defensive player of the year, but he did in the NFL. And I think if he had stayed healthy, you might have been talking about a Hall of Fame player. Are there any hidden gems or maybe lesser known players that you had to convince teams scouting staff to look into and eventually draft more that did become great players in the NFL or even just good players in the NFL? You know, I think the one guy that I get the most credit for um, in the NFL is my first year at the Browns. I was on the road, um, and I went to a store that was not on the list. They didn't have a prospect, supposedly, but I went there because they had a Division One basketball program, which is Drake University. Um and when I was there, the, the basketball players, none of them really looked like guys who could make the transition. But they had a place ticker that was not on any list or anything, and I added them to the list for teams to scout because I was doing it for the Browns, but we were part of Bresto, so all my reports were shared with the other teams in Bresto. Um, and the Dallas Cowboys ended up signing Billy Clinton as a rookie. Um, he made the team, and he ended up playing 10 or 11 years in the league. And if I hadn't gone to Drake that day, he probably would have never gotten on the list. I mean, never played in the NFL. We are talking to former NFL scout and CFL scout Russell Landy. Russ, you're, you're, you're watching the NFL and developing some, uh, some of these young quarterbacks, the mobile quarterbacks. Are you surprised that the league has transformed into these mobile quarterbacks from the pocket quarterbacks that nobody expected? I'm not overly surprised because if you look at all of them, except for maybe Lamar Jackson, who I think is still developing as a natural player, all of them are good passers. You can't be successful in the NFL, regardless whether it's in the pocket or on the move, if you can't throw the ball very accurately. And I think most NFL coaches, even the newer guys that are doing new things with offenses, will tell you that a quarterback who is not accurate still is not going to be successful in the NFL, whether it's on the move or in the pocket. And I think most NFL coaches will tell you, hey, if they have a guy that's accurate and he can move, that's man that does this. So, of course, they want that. So, it doesn't surprise me a ton, especially when you look back 20 years ago and guys like Donovan McNair. He really was able to carry an offense on his back because he had the added ability to get out of the pocket and make plays on the move in addition to being a good pocket passer. So it's not shocking. Athletes get better and better. Players work harder. Coaches do a better job of utilizing their talent. So it makes a lot of sense that quarterbacks who are athletes are going to be less successful now as long as they can still throw the ball consistently. Moving on to the CFL, how did the different rules and also the wider field change the way you scout in the CFL, both with Montreal and Calgary that you've been with both teams, in comparison to NFL scouting? What are the biggest differences? Well, the biggest difference of the matter is, unlike the NFL, where we are searching for the greatest players in the world, 
Um, we have to find the players that are tremendous players with a ton of potential to make game-changing plays that are just not good enough to last long-term in the NFL, but good enough to come up and be dynamic, productive players in the CFL. It's a very hard balance. Um, oftentimes, we end up with players that are a little smaller and more explosive, but smaller than the NFL would look for, or bigger guys that may not be explosive, but they're so much bigger than a lot of NFL teams would look for a receiver that we, we sort of make them fit, even though they may not be the prototypical NFL athlete. They work perfectly in Canada. The other thing we have to look for is Canadian players. Half of our roster happens to be Canadian citizens. Wow. So now there's 30 or 40 that are playing in the U.S. every year in state colleges. There are also 27 Canadian colleges playing college football. So we have to scout those guys and really grind deep to find good Canadian football players. Now, Russ, uh, the XFL went bankrupt, and everybody was saying how, how great the rules have transitioned the game of football and that the NFL should look at what the XFL d- has done with their rules and changed their rules. To, if they want to change some kind of rules, change it to the XFL rules. Were you surprised that after with this whole epidemic, this pandemic that's going on right now with COVID-19 and them canceling it, that it went bankrupt as well as it did the first couple of weeks it was on, on TV? Yeah, I was really surprised. And in truth, I don't know how much the league's finances itself had to do with the league not surviving. I think it was more the bigger picture of the corporation that owned um, the XFL. I think the XFL had met most of its targets for financial success going forward. I just think bigger picture, the whole company may have said, we're not going to be able to do well financially if we're spread so thin. Because I think the XFL did a lot of good things. I think their TV numbers were way better than most people thought they would be, even the ones at the end of the season. And I think the football was excellent. I think they did a great job. It's really interesting to see the XFL not there. There's some great people, both coaches, players, and personnel people. They really did a great job of putting that league together. Last question for me. Are there any players in the CFL right now that are currently stars within that league that you think maybe could make an NFL comeback? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, I can't really state how many there are right now because the ones that were really good in the last year or two, most of them have come down. Um, with Calgary, we had a player named Trey Roberson, um, and another player, Adams, both defensive backs. They both came down for the NFL this year and got legitimate signing bonuses um, with Green Bay and the Bears, respectively. And I think Trey Roberson is going to be a guy that ends up at some point challenging to be a starting quarterback for the Chicago Bears. Every year there's probably eight to ten guys that get signed. They get real money to come down and sign and have a legit chance to be contributing players in the NFL. And then another 10 or 15 sign with the hope that they can stick as backups. There's a lot more talent in the CFL than American fans would know, and that's why they need to watch the games on ESPN because there really is a ton of talent up in Canada. Russ, why don't you tell all the fans how they can find you on social media? Do you have a podcast? The, the best thing they can do is check me out at AfroFrandy.com. Um, I try to tweet as much as I can about players that I see that uh, are going to get NFL opportunities, but I'm not going to tweet about many players that have fallen over to the CFL because I don't want to give the radio secrets to other teams in the CFL. But 
about players I love or players I don't that are uh, going to be in the NFL or will happily put my opinion out there for people. Well, Russ, whenever the season starts for the CFL and the NFL, we would love to get you on and love your insight of what's going on in the NFL and the CFL and some of these young players that you've been scouting all these years. That sounds good. Anytime you guys want me to come on, just text or an email and I will be there. Thank you, Russ. We really appreciate it. No problem at all, guys. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Ex-former NFL scout, CFL scout, Russell Landy, gave us some good insight with the NFL draft, the CFL, the XFL. Great interviews today. Uh, Dave Damashak, who was really, really funny. Uh, and he's a Bills fan. <laughs> it seems like The Bills Network. It, it Might as well be. call it that at this point. The NFL Network is the Bills Network. Everybody loves the Bills. Everybody from the NFL Network loves the Bills this year to win the division. Boy, oh boy, are they going to be surprised if they don't win the division. I still, think, <laughs> I still think there's a great chance the Patriots could win it. And the Jets are a lot better than people state they, they are. So I think the Jets could really make a surprise. I, I'm not trusting, and Dave's absolutely right about Adam Gase. I don't trust Adam Gase moving forward. But who's to say Adam Gase is going to be the head coach after this year? I don't think he will be. And again... I think the Jets have the talent to make a run this year in the AFC, especially the weak AFC where there's only two teams to really worry about in Kansas City and Baltimore. Right. So I, I think uh, I think it's going to be a fun year if there is a season. I believe there's a season. So thanks to Russ and thanks for Dave for joining us. When we come back, we're going to get into some NFL conversation, some NBA conversation here on Down to the Wire. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, 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 you're listening, listening to Down to, Down to the Wire on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Six three one nine six five four nine nine zero. Little Ice Cube, yeah. That's what I'm talking about, Speedy. Ah. Uh. I'm not going to rap today. I'm not going to rap, oh. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> As you guys know, this is Down to the Wire. We are live every single Monday and Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. New York Eastern Time. Great interviews today from NFL analyst Dave Damachek and uh, NFL former NFL scout and CFL scout Russell Landy, who gave us good – both of them gave us good insight of the NFL draft, the XFL, the CFL – Great, great interviews. And if you guys want to check it out, you can watch the clip. Speedy will be posting it up all over social media. It was great, great interviews. But let's get into this topic. And I know everybody was watching this weekend, the UFC. Everybody and their mother was watching the UFC this weekend. And there were a lot of surprise, uh, surprise wins. And Tony Ferguson losing that fight was an absolute surprise to me. And I actually fell asleep before the fight. So I watched the replay of the fight the next day. But I was not very happy with Tony Ferguson's uh, uh, approach to his attack, his offensive style of game, going into that fight against Justin. And that's why Justin completely dominated the fight, especially in the third, fourth, and fifth rounds. Do you think he maybe fought down to him? I think he wasn't expecting Justin to be that powerful. Justin landed some powerful shots and really, really threw Tony Ferguson uh, out. You know, it's funny because when you're, you're training and... Tony Ferguson, for the last couple of months, has been training for Khabib. And Khabib actually wrote something sh- shouting, shooting out and shouting out to uh, 
Tony Ferguson saying that your son will still love you and all this other stuff. I think it was a, a complete a complete attack to Tony Ferguson, even though the words that he used against Tony Ferguson had nothing to do with taking a shot at him. But I was very, very surprised that Tony Ferguson lost that fight. I really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were hyping it up as something they just threw Gaethje in with him. So when I saw that on Twitter, I was seeing that Gaethje was dominating the fight. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. This is this is interesting because I don't I don't know UFC, but again, I I think everything I've heard from that show that or your show, your MMA show, that it's it seemed like Ferguson was a huge favorite. Well, Ferguson was definitely the favorite coming out going into that fight, and and really that whole card was a lot better than I thought it was. I, I really did thought, think that that card was a lot better than I thought it was. But again, I didn't expect Ferguson to get dominated that he did in the championship fight in, in the championship, the interim championship. And I was very surprised that when you look at the UFC and everybody keeps you know gracing and giving all the credit to the UFC for what they did. The UFC, <laughs> the UFC did what they needed to do to make their money. Let's be honest. Let's be damn honest with the whole UFC and the whole, the whole profit sharing of what that organization is with ESPN. Okay? The UFC and Dana White wanted to make their money. Now, I was very surprised that one of the fighters uh, was tested for COVID mm-hmm. uh, in their weigh-ins, and they didn't cancel the fight. Yeah, uh, Nathan asked me about that when he – when I was on his podcast, and I said probably because it was just one fight. Now I don't. How large was the fight card? Do you? Yeah, there was a, the, usually the fight cards from the preliminaries to the. It's usually five to six fights in the preliminaries, and then the regular card five fights. So there's okay. about eleven fights. All right, yeah. So probably since it was only one fight, and everyone was there already, uh, congregating in that area, maybe that's why they didn't do it. But if they did another, if they saw another one, another case like that, maybe that same day, they maybe they would have canceled them all. What kind of MMA fan? Really enjoyed that card. I, I know PSO, uh, Rob Mason actually wrote to me and says, I, I don't know about <laughs> you, but the UFC looked pretty damn good for, for that card. I said, I, I don't know what you were watching because I watched two or three good fights and then the rest of the card absolutely sucked. It absolutely sucked. Yeah, you said you weren't going to watch at all, didn't no, you? I, I, I have to watch because I do an MMA show. Okay. So I have to watch. I have to get... All the, the different thoughts to each and every fight. You didn't, that we're wa- gonna you, get you didn't want to watch No, I didn't want to watch it. And I was very upset that Tony Ferguson lost that fight. I really did. But Tony Ferguson didn't show up to that fight. It wasn't that Justin Cagey didn't show up to the fight. He showed up to that fight. It was Ferguson that didn't show up to that fight. And that's why Ferguson lost that fight. Yeah, you wonder, again, the preparation could be a lot different in terms of fighting a bigger guy and Khabib is a big name versus... Gaethje. Now, where was Gaethje ranked? Because, again, I don't know UFC. Where... Gaethje was ranked, I think, third, if I'm not mistaken, in that, in that division. I think okay. it was third or second in that division. Uh, no, he was second in the division. All right. No, wait. Connor was the third in the division. I, th- I think it's Ferguson, the number one contender. I think Ferguson was the number one contender. Then I think KG... Well, Gagey was the number two contender, and then Conor McGregor was the number three. Or Conor was the number two, and then Gagey was the number number three. But we have our first call of the day, and you guys know him from our show, Caged in mm-hmm. MMA. Anthony Anderosi, what's going on, Ant? Did somebody say UFC? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, just like we said, the fight card sucked. <laughs> Plain and simple. Now, mind you, yes, you have your little moments of doc. Like, I think the first one was the COVID-19, which I love when they find out that one of uh, Jacare's family members or a couple of his family members were positive. They found out on Wednesday. 
Mm-hmm. They wait, okay, and don't say get the hell out of here. They wait and let him mill around with the other two corners who also, and here's the other thing, the other two, the two of his corners tested positive as well. <laughs> That's right. So this is the beauty of, you know, I, I'm glad the UFC said they were first. They're, not only that they going to be first, but I think I saw Bobby Campbell and a couple of people wrote this. Well, what happens now? Do things get pushed back? If God forbid somebody gets sick? Well, regards to the incubation period, we don't know who's sick yet, but I think a lot of people were probably wondering, for all of the masks that you saw around the ring, which I got to kick out of because here's the biggest question I had and a lot of people have. If you don't have anybody in the stands, why do you need an arena that goddamn big <laughs> in the first place? And you're complaining about money. You're complaining about money, but let's rent out an arena. Let's not do this in a performance center in Vegas or a performance center life setting or something small. No, 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 no. We need a big arena so it looks even emptier on TV. Hey, Anthony, you but, love Dana White. You love him. Hey, you want to know something? I'll tell you right now. I've always given Dana White a lot of credit for what he's done for the sport and everything. But here's the thing. Based off of the fact that you wanted to be number one, you wanted to get your Disney money, which is what this fight card was, which is another reason. And if anybody wants to say it's not a spectacle that he's going to do this, and then on Wednesday there's another fight night, and on Saturday there's another fight night. No, it's because he hasn't had enough paychecks from Disney, so he gets three paychecks from Disney right there mm-hmm. based off distribution. Now, we talked about the Gagey fight. Gagey, obviously, that was a huge upset. Upset. Why? Because even on my – it was huge upset. Huge upset. I mean, hell, I was I was hoping that Ferguson won because then I wouldn't have been five for five on my DraftKings picks. <laughs> so that would have been the first thing. Hey, listen, I actually – it was it was a nice five-fight parlay that I had there. You put down $25, you win 350 But when it was all said and done, Ferguson had to go back into his Oliver McCall – you know, alien sighting mode. A couple of times, I don't know what the hell he was doing where he looked like he was getting ready to do kung fu. You can't tell me that that was a Ferguson who was mentally there. Not saying physically. Physically, I'm perfectly satisfied with the idea that he was ready to fight anybody. Two weeks ago, he was supposed to fight Khabib, and it wasn't going to happen. So I feel like, you know, from a standpoint of conditioning, he was ready. Mentally, yeah, he was on Saturn. I don't know what the hell he was doing. <laughs> Flat I, out. I was surprised. Now he's got a, and not only that, he's got a broken eye a little now. I know. He's going to be out with, for a while. He's going to be out for a while. And you're going to worry about Six the months. nerve stuff whenever yeah. it heals with, uh, you know, in regards to your, like, you know, the peripheral vision and everything. You know, nobody fought. And, like, he, he wanted to fight. He fought. He, that was it. Well, that's why you're never you gonna know, you're never gonna see Khabib and Ferguson fight now. It's it's never gonna know, based happen. Based off of the way Ferguson fought, if he won a decision in that case, I would have wanted to see it anyway. Well, I, way, I, I believe one step away from Area Fifty One. No, I believe <laughs> I believe that he thought that the Gagey fight was going to be a lot easier than it was, and Gagey surprised him. He he surprised him with the power that he had, and I think he was completely offset on the thought that he that Gagey was even going to give him a challenge in that fight, and that threw him off. Mm-hmm. I, I believe he was ready for Khabib, and I thought, I think that if he fought Khabib, he would have beaten Khabib. Now, just because... Gagey went out there with like a guy with nothing to lose. That's no, what happened. Gagey went out there with absolutely. a guy with nothing to lose. And I'll tell you this right now. I think Gagey, if he uses that power against Khabib, and he stands up, and Khabib decides to stand up with him, I think he has, no, he has enough power to knock out Khabib, too. I really do. I, I don't know about that. I, I do. Just based off of, because I don't feel like that was a, 
100%. We can put an asterisk next to it if you want and say, you know, this was, you know. His power before is. Before the alien sighting. Yeah, but you. Yeah, but you know but damn, you know damn well, person. Anthony, you know damn well that power is for real. That power is for real. You saw, no. you saw Ferguson's face. He's always face. had the power. Even in the other, when he was in other organizations, he always had the power. The biggest thing with, with Gagey is the wear and tear he's had on his body. You know, his eye isn't crooked for a reason. For no reason. I mean, there's a reason why he constantly, he constantly looks like he's staring at the tip of his nose, you know. But when all, and people just say I'm making fun of him. I am making fun of this because oh, it's an epic card. No, it's not. It wasn't an epic card. You put Dominic oh Cruz in there. Dominic dude. Cruz hasn't fought since Ronda Rousey fought. And was it a big surprise that he lost against Henry Cerrone? Anthony, you want to hear no, this? No, it wasn't. Anthony, you want to hear this? I get a text right. message at one thirty in the morning by PSO founder um, Rob Mason. And he tells me, hey, I'll read it off to you, Anthony, because I, I, I have to read it off. Rob, uh, no offense to you, but Rob, who thinks Dana White is creative. Here, here. That guy. He says, I got to say for a casual fan, the UFC 249 has been entertaining as hell. That's what he tells me. <laughs> at, hold on. Hold on. At 1253 a.m. on Saturday night. I was sleeping, by the way. I didn't even get to watch the Ferguson fight until the next day. I watched the replay of the fight because I fell asleep to it. So, and who wrote that? Uh, this was Rob Mason from PSL. <laughs> we, had, he, we had him on, on on Monday, and him and Errol got in a whole argument. He said Dana White is a creative genius or something like that. And, Wait a second. And Errol, and Errol, obviously, you well, know PSL. how he feels about Dana White. Yeah, they went PSL, at it for the, a while. The organization that uh, we're, we're talking to right now, he's – He's got great insight with the MLB, and he doesn't know really anything about the UFC. So I'm not going to take a shot at him because he really doesn't know anything about fighting. No, it's okay. I mean, in, but... in all honesty, when it's, as he said, he's a casual fan. Mm-hmm. And to a casual fan, I'm sure it was, you know, entertaining. Why? We haven't had anything other than Korean baseball and cornhole championships <laughs> in ping pong for the last two months. <laughs> so if that was the case, I mean, uh, a, a game of bridge with a whole bunch of old ladies is exciting at this point. <laughs> I'm surprised. So of course, I'm you know, surprised. I'm not the, taking shots at him either. I'm surprised the UFC We're didn't. For sports. Anthony, I'm surprised the UFC didn't do the uh, the cardboard cutout thing to fill that that large arena. You want to know something? I'm I'm telling you, Speedy. I don't I don't get it. They're bitching about money. Oh, how much do you think that damn venue cost? Number one. Not to mention it's. It made no sense. We're worried about money, but we need a big ass arena to fit what? Nothing. My only guess, I think, Nothing. is is maybe they didn't have enough time. Being they canceled it a bunch of times, maybe they didn't have time to scramble around and, and set up another arena for that well, event. That here's, well, here's the thing: they have that locked up for two days. This past fight, the next one on Wednesday. Oh, in some ways, the one on Wednesday, I think I'm more inclined to watch because it's a fight night. It's not drummed up. As this, oh my God! But you have a lot of young talent on it. Yeah, Anthony Smith on there, Glover Tuftera. You know, I mean, a nice little, you know, veteran versus you know, upcoming guy. Is he going back to go against John Jones? What happens as soon as John Jones gets out of Sing Sing or wherever the hell he's going to end up next? You know, and then next week they have another one. But it just seems very. It seems weird. It's you know, I'm I'm, I'm starving for money. I have no money, but I'm going to go out to eat it for dinner. It's that same concept. It's stupidity, and it makes no sense. What doesn't even make more sense? We all know what's under whatever you see on camera is obviously it's etched in stone. It's etched in everybody's heads. You have fighters that have no masks on. Corner men have the masks on. People around the judges have the masks on. 
Joe Rogan's going talking to people, got a microphone in their face, two feet away from each other, no mask. He was Joe Rogan was making fun of the whole situation that there were no crowd, there was no people on the crowd. How many times did he go into the ring or go into the octagon after the fight to interview the winner and say, Oh, uh, I'm, I'm interviewing in front of no no crowd, no fans, <laughs> and he's laughing. It, it, to I would, me, I would make that joke too. I would make that joke too because it's ridiculous, Errol. Why the hell? It's one thing if you have some of these major sports like soccer and everything, and there's nobody in the stands. Get it? NASCAR, there's nobody in the stands. You have the Ultimate Fighter TV show, which is in a gym. It's a pretty much of a gymnasium, if we could call it that. And you see more people that they fit in that in that little section. From sponsors to whatever, watching the uh, Ultimate Fighter game during that reality show over. that you see in the arena. <laughs> Why don't you go that way and cut your costs? No, we're not going to cut our costs. We want to go big. We want to be the first guy, first one to do it. You, well, there you go. You were the first ones. I would rather be the best one. Do you want to be the first one? Gross. You be, be the first one. And on top of that, they're going to be the best at transmitting this damn disease all over the place because as our Florida correspondent, Arrows number one, <laughs> when he was on the line, we we found out that Jacksonville is in the most heavily populated yep. corona-infected uh, population in all of Florida. Well, yep. the largest city. That makes sense. <laughs> so it's like, why not? Hey, you know something? Let's not, let's not jeopardize the ones that have nothing in it. Let's just go where they are anyway. Because, hey, if we get sick, we're there anyway. Mm. What the hell? No, well, it's like saying, you know, I know I'm going to get my car robbed, so I might as well park over here <laughs> in the ghetto opposed to parking in the garage because it's going to get stolen anyway. Well, it was it, to me. Give up. To me, I thought the card was okay. I, I, I got to see Mitchell, and I told you that. I texted you. I know you're going to say he fought nobody, but he fought a black belt. Mitchell man. sucks. He's a hillbilly. Uh, I know you don't like him. I know you don't like <laughs> him. I was, I was very impressed with the kid. I really was. That but, there boy, that there boy's got to go against veterans. All right. Well, before you know, I get believe some indoor plumbing, and then we'll. I'm talk. telling you, right. I'm telling you right now. I think the kid's going to be a good fighter. I really do. I I was very what? impressed, very impressed the way he he was grappling. He was taking a black belt, a Brazilian gym. I know what you're going to say. Well, he's a black belt, and you, I know what you're going to say because you train. Black belt on right now. I that's fine, but it, the fact is, is that this guy is an MMA fighter who is a black belt, and he tapped that black belt out. So I, I to me, you control that kid. You don't see many twenty four thirties. In a decision. Well, you don't see many 2430s in a decision. You control. That means you had eight, eight rounds. When you see eights that prevalent in mm-hmm. a judging situation, that's the judges. It's an unwritten rule. That's the judge almost telling the referee, yo, what are we doing here? Yeah. shouldn't even be in here. Well, um, I, I was very impressed with the kid. I mean, he, he did everything. I, I told you, what does the UFC have to look forward to? And I still don't think they have much. But this kid, who I I was very impressed. I know you're impressed with uh, what's his name again? The kid that we were talking about over here after the show. Um, who Sadiq Yusuf? Yep, Sadiq. So you you oh, like no, Sadiq is good. But you, you want to know something? Here's the other thing, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about this on the show on Friday. Yeah. One thing a lot of people don't realize, and this came out right uh, during the telecast. Um, as we all know, Khabib. Missing in action, he's you know saving the whales and saving the whales and opening his mouth, feeding feeding the homeless, opening his mouth and taking shots, which he can't get into right now. Yeah, opening his mouth Um, and taking shots at Ferguson after losing that fight. Exactly, Mm -hmm. he's off twittering from somewhere. He was probably he was probably in the first row. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) He was hiding in the empty arena. (laughs) But 
here's the funny thing, and this is what's going out there, and a lot of people haven't mentioned it yet, but I will. People are talking about Francis uh, Nagal's performance, knocking that guy out in 20 seconds, which was that, – that was a legit contender he knocked out in 20 seconds, too. That was insane. Um, does he get enough, should he get the title shot? Absolutely. But Dana White's talking about stripping Tite because he hasn't fought or defended his title. He fought on UFC 241, which was not more than maybe like three, four months ago. When the hell has Khabib defended his title? And he still has it. Oh, it's, it's taken a long time because you remember he was suspended for nine months with the Absolutely. Conor McGregor thing. And they didn't strip but him of that. Wanted, but Stipe, because he, not only is he a fireman, or a firefighter, excuse me, a first responder, because he says, I just want to let this stuff slide and then we'll get back to it, but I'll fight whoever you put in front of me. He actually said that. Whether it's DC or Miguel, I'll fight whoever you put in front of me. I just want to make sure that DC's I'm coming back. DC's coming back? DC said he would come back and fight Francis Miguel. Mind you how he said this. Fight Francis Miguel for the vacated title if Dana strips Stipe. So he's already got an agenda. He doesn't want to fight Stipe because what Stipe did to him. Of course he doesn't. He doesn't want to fight him. Well, he I, even said, if there was a trilogy, Stipe said, if there was a trilogy, I would come back. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Dana White said he wants to clear all this to clear up. I'm not dealing with the uh, chances of getting sick or anything, which he has every right to. But then what do you do? Now, they said strip him. They didn't say that the gal was going to have to fight for an interim title. No, because of the money-making factors. Meanwhile, Gagey, now the interim champion, if anybody thinks Gagey's going to fight Khabib first, right. they're out of their damn mind. He could say it's going to happen all he wants. Well, who are they going to fight? Who's going to be fighting Khabib first? This is just my take, and this Honor? is the reason why, and I'll actually justify this. Gagey versus Khabib is not a moneymaker. Not a moneymaker. Gagey versus Connor is a moneymaker. Connor versus Khabib is a moneymaker. Gagey with Khabib is not a moneymaker. So who do you think is going to fight Khabib next? I, I honestly think that Khabib could get uh, Connor before unifying the title with Gagey. I don't. I think here's, here's the guy I think Connor's going to fight next now that this all happened, Nate Diaz. I, I think it makes sense. Nate Diaz. Oh, coming. no. Like I said, that makes sense as well. Yes. Uh, Connor and Gagey, as soon as, as soon as you put Connor in, money's coming. Right. Money is coming. But you understand what I'm saying by Gagey is not a name on his, on his, on, on himself alone. That, but that's, to be what, able to try but to that's, that that's why what you do with this is on that same card, you put, uh, you know, as the co-main event, Connor versus Nate. That's what I would do. And, and, or make them. Oh, I would stretch out. I totally agree with you. Stretch out the dollar because at this point, you know as well as I do, it doesn't matter who and how many fights McGregor wins or loses. You could throw him in there at any time, and he's going to make money. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the Anderson Silva thing. It's there, he's now there to sell tickets. Connor's there now to sell tickets. That's <laughs> what it is. And I mean, unfortunately, should it happen that way? No. But this, just like everything else, just like what we're seeing this weekend, it's a business. Nobody cares. Mm. I mean, think about it. It's a business. You don't care if people are getting sick. I'm not a businessman. I'm it's a, a businessman. Business Jay-Z said that's that That's it. You know? So, like I said before, and I'll let you guys go because I'm sure there's plenty of things that you want to, like, cover. Well, we're going to finish up, yes. 
but I'm just saying. And everybody, tune in on Friday. Trust me, you'll hear a lot more rants we have and some, all this stuff. We have some guests. Not just this fight. You have we, two more. We have some guests on, on Friday as well. We do? Yeah, well, <laughs> well there you go. Jeff? Jeff from Tampa? No, we have, a, we have guests that are going to join our show on Friday. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Dick. I mean, <laughs> obviously, you're not aware of anything. <laughs> well, no, if this, if this has something to do with something that I spoke to somebody about that somebody thinks that they're getting on on Friday, that ain't happening. But <laughs> that one ain't happening. Um, Why? But hopefully the other one is. That would be So fun. now that we've let all that mystery out there, yeah. you know, everybody's just got to tune in to find out. Mm. Or, or are we just throwing a smoke screen in the fact that, you know, Errol's going to start screaming at <laughs> But, you know. But then again, what would Friday be without that? It's well, like having Sunday with no Sunday mass. Well, I, I'll hold off on what I really have to say about Dana White. I'll use that. <laughs> I'll use that on Friday. That will be my, my, my whole positive influence for all the fans to listen to on Friday. Well, everybody needs to keep an eye out on the new Instagram for Cajun MMA because... You'll have my new, that's right, my new degenerate gambling picks on there by tomorrow night. How wonderful. Looking forward to it. Let me tell hey, you. Hey, listen, I, if it wasn't for the upset, I would have been 5 for 5 Errol. Well, you really got to get in on this. <laughs> I'm not getting you on You really got to get in I on I am this. not getting in on any betting fights. <laughs> and that was for a 25-hour bet. Oh, I'm man. telling you. Oh, man. This guy, he's it's becoming, so close, he went man. from dollar bets to $25. <laughs> you I mean, finally it's, convinced it's, him. <laughs> it's moving up, man. He's moving up on the east side. That's hey, listen, you know, I'm, I'm working off stimulus money. Jeff gave you the idea. I'm working off stimulus money now. You are crazy. Anthony, anyway, thank you for joining us. Have a good one, guys. Anthony Anderosi, my counterpartner for Caged in MMA. Uh, we will have some guests joining us on Friday. That's going to be fun. Uh, there is a guest that I do want to get on the show. I don't think he wants him on the show, but I think it'll be really, really funny if we can get him on the show. So, uh, And we're going to have some UFC fighters joining us in two weeks after this week. So uh, we have uh, um, a couple of them so lined up for, for all the fans out there. So stay tuned for that. Before we go, uh, there, there a lot of talks right now with the NFL coming back and is the NFL going to have fans in the audience? If that happens, and I do believe everything that I've been hearing through uh, different insiders that the NFL is planning to start the season on time and that the stadium will not be filled, that they're only going to allow about 20 percent of the fans to come into the stadium and watch the games live. Now, a lot of people say, well, what does that mean? There are ticket holders. So are all the ticket holders are going to be those guys. I say I say no. I think 10 percent will be ticket holders and the other 10% will be variated through, you know, buying tickets right. online. But it's going to be a very expensive. So if, if you're a football fan and you're an NFL fan, the best, the best thing to do is make sure you get the NFL package. Right. And I think a lot of those ticket holders, too, are, weren't expecting these circumstances to come about. If they were season ticket holders for 20 years or so, this is the first time that kind of thing has ever happened where this, where this season is on strike because of this. We had player strikes in the 80s, but... Nothing like this where you're going to have fans maybe reduced to maybe, what, 7,000, 8,000 fans. That's about 20% of 40,000, 45,000, depending on how much your stadium gets. It's nothing reduced like that where you're going to have to spread out across the stadium. You're not, gonna, not every fan's going to be able to get good views. And, again, the teams as a whole are going to lose some profit as a result as well just because there's going to be more skeptical people of going. I think it's going to be very, very interesting moving forward for the NFL season and the MLB season and the NBA season. I, I have been hearing stories that the NBA 
Uh, everything that I've heard, I didn't think the NBA is coming back. Now what I'm hearing after what uh, Adam Silver has said over the weekend, that he believes that there will be an NBA season, and they plan to start the next NBA season for 2021 in December. Okay. So mm-hmm. what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to start the season sometime at the end of June, July, and they're going to have a playoff, or are they going to play those 15 games? I don't know, but I do believe that they plan that the season will be over in October, and then they're going to have about a month and a half, two months to have the NBA draft and, and whatever they plan to do before December, end of December, beginning of January for the NBA season of 2020. I would imagine the NBA would try to prioritize the playoffs as more of being the focal point, and they would, if worst case, reduce the next NBA season because a lot of players sit out those games anyway with uh, load management now. So I don't think them shorting the NBA regular season of 2020-21 would be as big of a deal considering all those players sitting out. And I do believe the MLB season will have a season as well. Uh, every story that I've heard that the MLB in the next couple of days are going to reach out to the players and give them their thoughts on how they plan to have a season this year. I do believe they're going to cut the season down to about 90 to 85 games. Mm-hmm. And I believe it will not be held in any of their stadiums. I think it will be held in Arizona and possibly Orlando or Florida, the Florida outcast of some mm-hmm. Fort Lauderdale yeah, or stuff we, like that. We've so, heard Arizona, Texas, and Florida, those being the three spots, if they were to do that idea. And the, the game's anywhere from 75 not the to same. 90 games. It's not the same. No, it won't be the same. It's not that. the same as, as a baseball fan not to get the chance to watch the Yankees play in Yankee Stadium this year, not to get the chance to go to a baseball game in City Field and hang out with the family and, and go and buy some popcorn or some ribs or whatever the heck you want to eat and, and drink a beer. That, to me, is is the most uh, horrendous thing that's happening in professional sports today and, and moving forward is the fact that there aren't going to be an opportunity for us to go and watch these football games live. Now, is it better on TV? I think it is because uh, you, you get up close and personal. You get to hear the play-by-play. I think it's just much better. It's just not the same thing without playing in front of a crowd. I think players are going to think that, too, uh, as they move forward, especially the NBA season where everybody is saying, and you know the Lakers and the Clippers are not going to be playing home games mm-hmm. at any time. So it, it, it's a disadvantage for the Lakers, and it's a disadvantage for the, sta- uh, for, for the Staples Center because even though they're not bringing any money because there's no fans going to be there, what are the, to me, as, as a Laker fan or even as a Staple, uh, as a Clippers. Clipper fan, the fact that they're not going to get the chance to play on their rims, their, uh, their stadium. Now, everybody says, everybody keeps saying, well, that doesn't mean that they can't play in the Staples Center because there's no fans there. They have already said there will be no events, no matter what, players or no players uh, or no fans. There will not be any live coverage games played in L.A. for the rest of the year. Right. It's also surrounding city kind of thing. You're used to the routine at the Staples Center if you're a Clippers or Lakers player and the routine of the L.A., the city, versus, again, if it's a neutral site or, again, what is essentially a road game, potentially, depending on where they're located. It's going to be very, very interesting. In the NHL season, I do believe it's coming back, too, and I I believe they're coming back before uh, the NBA is. I think they have to just because of the ice surfaces, I would imagine. Well, I, I just think that... Gary Bettman, Gary Bettman, I, I call him Bettman because you can bet on Gary that he's going to have a re, another, he's going to bring back the season because he wants to make the money. But um, 
I do believe that the NHL will have a playoff, and I don't know how they're going to set up uh, the playoffs, and are they going to let some of these teams, maybe you let more teams make the playoffs and have like a round robin. I don't know what the NHL is going to plan to do because it's not fair to some of these teams like the Islanders and the Rangers are one point or two points out of a playoff spot, and they don't get a chance to play their 15, 16 games that could get them into the playoffs. I, I don't right. think that's fair to any of those teams. So maybe... They Maybe might. Gary Bettman does a round robin with some of these teams right. and some of these uh, the closer teams to make the playoffs. I don't know. Yeah, how they might do, do it like if there was the seven seed plays the ten and the nine plays the eight in a one game playoff or something like that. Like like MLB does with their wild card teams, you might see something like that, or maybe best of three series or something like that. I, I'm going to be very interested to see what the NHL is going to do with their playoff uh, their playoff format. move mm-hmm. and format uh, for the NHL if there is the rest of the season for the NHL. I do believe there is. Definitely bet on Gary Bettman. So, uh, <laughs> nice. I, 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 I would bet on him. So, and, and, and I do believe everything. I didn't think uh, basketball was coming back. Everything that I've read, and especially what Adam Silver said over the weekend, that they plan to have a basketball season, and the players want a basketball season. So uh, it's going to be very interesting how they're going to test these players, COVID-19, and they're going to have to have thousands and thousands of tests, which we're very low on here, low in here in the United States, especially in New York State. How are they right. going to do that and where they're going to be doing that and where they're going to be held? And the NBA is a very rich organization, but is it going to be worth doing that every single game, every single day for these players to test? And if they do pass test positive, it's a disadvantage to those teams not to have those players for two weeks. Right. So it's going to be very, very interesting moving forward as far as I'm concerned in professional sports. Tomorrow we have a lot of special guests. Who do we have tomorrow? Tomorrow we have at 6.15 we have... The Alex Fuse, one of the Royals. The minor- Alex Fuse? You said the Alex Fuse. Who is he? No, I, I said I said we. <laughs> Sorry. Alex Fuse, is, uh, he does the one of the Royals minor league systems. He does the play-by-play broadcasting for that. He will be on at 6.15. And then at 7.15, we have former NFL defensive back Von Hutchins. He played six years with the Colts, Texans, and Falcons. And now he's also one of the high board members of the NFLPA. He also does scouting. For oh, this will uh, be fun. To ask one of the, uh, one of the Southeast uh, collegiate bowls. He does the scouting for that in the Southeast. So, so there you go. I'm on at seven So there you go. We have two very special guests. So stay tuned for tomorrow until tomorrow. Remember, you can call us at six, three, one, nine, six, five, four, nine, nine, zero. Remember guys, download our app. If you're not downloading an app, it is free. Download it. All you have to do is on iOS, go to WWSRN, and on Android, go to Worldwide Sports Radio Network, download it. It's free. You can stay in tune with us. You can watch our shows live on our app. It's right there on the bottom. Hit the live key. You can listen to us live on the live key now on the bottom. You can read all our stories. You can stay uh, with our Speedy's clips, the video clips that he does on that he posts up on YouTube and all over social media. You can see the clips of all the interviews that we have. Uh, we'd like to thank um, Dave Damachek to, uh that joined us from the NFL Network. I'd like to thank Russell Landy for joining us, uh, ex-NFL scout and CFL scout. Uh, great insight with the NFL draft, both of them, and, and with the XFL and CFL as well. Uh, like I said, we'll be back tomorrow at 6 p.m. New York Eastern Time. Until then, this is Errol Marks and Speedy Petey and Down to the Wire saying goodnight, and we'll talk to you then. Bang. Thank you. Good night. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.